Hello, let's start with some quotations. See if you can see what's going on here. Number one, Thrill Street was the centre for hundreds of these dregs of humanity. Sluts who knew no other way to live, cast off wives and impoverished widows, dipsomaniacs and the slaves of out-of-work labourers. Here existed so-called lodging houses where these women herded together, paying fourpence a night for the privilege of sleeping on a bug-infested bed, consisting of little more than a blanketed board in a room that might accommodate as many as 60 at a time. Number two, Polly Nichols was a Whitechapel whore, which tells us much, for they were a species apart. In this respect, Polly Nichols was typical. Only five feet two in height, she gave an overall impression of drabness, with mouse-coloured hair, sallow complexion, and five front teeth missing from her lower, lower jaw, souvenir of a brawl. Number three, Marianne Nichols, or Nichols, was a pathetic creature, down on her luck, if anyone was. Number four, Polly Nichols was a drab little woman. 42 years old, her brown hair turning mousily grey, with two bottom teeth and a top tooth lost in fights. She stood five foot two inches tall and maintained an alcoholic brightness and pugnacity. Number five, Annie Chapman was a short, beefy woman, aged 45. And number six, on the morning of the 9th of November 1888, the Lord Mayor's coach stood ready for the procession down to St Paul's. Only a handful of people knew that a short distance away, Mary Kelly lay carved pieces by the ripper. We're going to come back to those, but keep them in mind. Today, let's talk about where ripperology stands in today's anti-ripperological world. What challenges does it face? And how many of them are existential, if any? What does it need to do to survive? Supposing, of course, that we think it should. One of the strangest phenomena of the last decade or so in ripperology is the amount of money that has been spent on it. And in many cases, this money has been spent by people who actually have very little time for it as a discipline. Bruce Robinson's book, They All Love Jack, was published in 2015, and it was widely reported that he had spent half a million pounds on it. We know what he thought, and presumably still thinks, of ripperologists because he tells us, by way of a somewhat fervid fantasy scene in the very first paragraphs of his book. Middle-aged men with disturbing expressions. These are the ripperologists, an inflamed, bespectable, bespectacled authority fights his way to the front. Shut this fast down, he demands. You are all duped. He struggles to get a pedometer past a pack of egg sandwiches. I've measured his roots, he charges, thrusting his instrument as proof. I challenge you all with the roots. 
Well, Robinson's outlay was overshadowed by that attributed to Patricia Cornwell, who published the second edition of her book, now called Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert, in 2017. Her work had cost her $7 million. To be fair to Cornwell, she doesn't think that Ripperologists are her only detractors. She also thinks that her conclusions are indigestible to the art trade, whose practitioners have a vested financial interest in maintaining the market's interest in their valuable artworks. But she also saw the Ripperologists coming. When my book was released in the winter of 2002, and I headed to the UK for the publicity tour, I was baffled to hear reports from FBI friends that the Ripperologists are lying in wait for you. Apparently this was based on postings on the internet, and I thought it all ridiculous. Not quite sure who these Ripperologists were. I joked that their threat brought to mind Klingons in formation, ready to fire upon the USS Enterprise. And then there's Hallie Rubenhold, whose book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, was published in 2019. I don't think that book could have cost anything like what Robinson or Cornwell spent on theirs, but Rubenhold had access to an editorial team, research assistants, and these are all good things. No criticism is implied. All I'm saying is that there was another injection of capital there. And yet Ripperologists are no more in favour, I don't think that's a spoiler, with Hallie Rubenhold than they were with Robinson and Cornwell. What is it about Ripperologists? Can't they see a good thing when it's in front of them? Why are they so possessive about certain things? So insular, so fearful of outsiders and their strange new ideas? Of course, this characterisation of Ripperologists is open to review. Hallie Rubenhold's own assessment of her work was that it had disrupted the Ripper narrative. This narrative, she went on, means a great deal to many people. Some have invested decades of their lives in trying to identify the killer. Others have built an identity for themselves around being a Ripperologist. But this seems to imply that there is one Ripper narrative around which every Ripperologist had instinctively and invariably huddled. On the contrary, my experience of Ripperologists is that they are as ideologically atomised and dissimilar in their view of what the narrative might really be, as you'd expect any group of humans to be. They're all touching a different part of the elephant. Robinson and Cornwell, in the quotations that I've given, also seem to think that Ripperologists are somehow bound by some sort of commonality. Either, in Cornwell's case, a pathologically defensive way of thinking, or in Robinson's case, their dietary and sartorial choices and their visual acuity. But my eyesight is fine, thank you very much, and however much Ripperologist X, whoever he or she may be, thinks that we ought to pull up the drawbridge against the barbarians outside the castle walls, I'd expect Ripperologist Y to disagree, sometimes forcefully. Cornwell's Star Trek metaphor is an interesting one. In the brouhaha following the publication of Hallie Rubenhold's book, 
The cultural commentator Matthew Sweet tweeted that, quote, in unkind moments, he was disposed to, disposed to think of rhythmology as a sort of, quote, wanker's holodeck, end quote. But imagine trying to disparage the social graces of rhythmologists by using Star Trek as a metaphor. For what it's worth, I get the distinct feeling that it wasn't the Klingons that Patricia Cornwell was thinking of in 2002. It was probably the Borg, a group of cybernetic organisms linked in a hive mind called the Collective. Thanks, Wikipedia. But that's as much as I know about Star Trek. No, really, it is. Also, in 2002, did the FBI really have nothing better to do than to put a bat up the leg of Patricia Cornwell's trousers suit by telling her that the rhythmologists were waiting for their chance to test her conclusions? Really? I think we should be told. So it is that we reach this point. <clears throat> where being described or self-describing as a rhythmologist can feel like the sort of savage personal insult one might expect to receive as a member of the cast on succession without the comfort blankets of the helicopters and the yachts. But it's my intention in this lecture to present a refutation to the status quo. I think rhythmology has more to offer than its recent critics have perceived. And I think that it can make a coherent claim to be a responsible discipline. To get there, we have to spend a bit more time with Hallie Rubenhold first, and one of the things that we're going to have to do is listen to her. I'm going to suggest that Hallie Rubenhold's disruption of the Ripper narrative, as she puts it, is in fact a necessary and important challenge to the orthodoxy of Ripperology. A timely shaking up of a field of study which has too often been blind to its own faults and unnecessarily tolerant of bad eggs and not just in its official sandwiches. The five, Rubenhold writes, challenges the very validity of the pursuit of rhythmology. To some extent, and we can perhaps determine to what extent, she's probably right. Whatever we think about it, the public's embrace of Rubenhold's conclusions, not simply about the victims, but about the role performed by rhythmologists in the transmission of their stories, tells us something about how we ought to be going about our business. And it's not as if we can look back at our track record in rhythmology with unadulterated confidence. Remember those quotations from the start of the lecture? They're all from books on my bookshelf, and if you're hearing this, you've probably got the same books on your bookshelf too. Here they are again. Did you spot the common theme? If not, the highlighting might help. Language matters. Hallie Rubenhold wants to see the victim's humanity. That's the word she uses. Nobody, I think, can have a problem with that. But it's alarming and telling to find that there are books on my shelves, again, not the scarce ones, but the ones that might be on anybody's shelves, the ones that you can pick up secondhand in charity shops and cheaply on eBay, the ones which are published by reputable companies. 
in which ripperologists explicitly or implicitly compare the victims of the Whitechapel murders to animals. Quotation number one and quotation number two come from the same source. Notice how groups of disenfranchised women quote herded together in quotation number one. Notice how in quotation number two Marianne Nichols is not simply the victim of socially imposed class asymmetries but actually now biologically different from other people. A species apart. Some of the quotations tell us what kind of animals are being thought of. In quotations two and four, vermin. In quotation five, and perhaps quotation one, cattle. In quotation six, some sort of animal slaughtered through its meat. One senses that in real life, if any of these authors had been asked whether they regarded the victims of, of Jack the Ripper as animals or humans, they would have answered humans. But if ripperologists must have recourse to the animal kingdom as a source of metaphorical language and imagery, why must they fix on animals which are destined either to be exterminated as pets, pests or butchered for food? I can't pretend that this is a comprehensive survey of the literature, but from my reading so far there appears to be an interesting epiphenomenon occurring here. Mary Ann Nichols is frequently a target of animal-related figurative language. See here quotations two through four and add quotation one, which occurs immediately before she's introduced in the book from which it's extracted. I think the reason is that as history teaches us that she was by convention the first victim of Jack the Ripper, she's often the first to be written about in chronological studies of the murders. By undermining, undermining her humanity, authors subtextually imply that the whole sorority of victims can be similarly dehumanised. If one of the victims is an animal, then they all are. Quotations five and six show that the other victims are not immune from this treatment. But Marianne Nichols tends, as far as I read it, to be the victim through whose description authors establish readers' expectations about the character of all the victims. I can anticipate challenges to this from listeners. What about all the books in which the victims are not compared to animals? Well, certainly they exist. But here are outward-facing books that can be picked up by anybody and read. If the world beyond ripperology thinks as Robinson, Cornwell and Rubenhold appear to, that is, if people think that ripperologists are perverted misogynists acting with one mind, then textual phenomena like an animal comparisons are not the way to prove them wrong. Instead, the antidote is to ensure that ripper literature, at least moving forward post Rubenhold, has a better meta-awareness of the conscious an unconscious prejudice of the language it chooses. You don't have to be woke to know that these sorts of animal comparisons are reductive and inappropriate. We need to know that this is a problem and we need to reject the stereotypes and caricatures of the past. The funny thing is that Rubenhold isn't completely off the hook here. In her discussion of the courtship 
of Marianne Walker, as she was then, and William Nichols, she says this. As Nichols was a contemporary of Polly's brother, who worked as an engineer, it's possible that Edward introduced him into the family. With two male shepherds to guard over the small, dark-haired, brown-eyed young woman, William would have been certain to have ingratiated himself into their close circle. Well, to characterise the two male members of Marianne's household, her father and her brother, as shepherds, has the unwanted effect of reducing Marianne to the status of a sheep, and William Nichols to the status of a potential predator with the good sense and interaction skills to get on the right side of the shepherds. And listen, these two sentences are a little bit of a mess, aren't they? Why the quotation marks around the word engineer? Was he or wasn't he? Are we meant to doubt it? And these sentences, like so many in Reuben Holt's book, are vitiated by it is possible and would have been certain to. These extra clauses and convoluted case structures can be a bit wearing after a while. Now, really, I'm only partly criticising this. Ripper writers don't always do nuance and subtlety, and I like a bit of nuance and subtlety. I think that doubt is one of the most useful tools in the historian's toolkit. I was talking recently to someone who is reading history at Oxford, and she told me that one of the things that her professors were looking for in their end-of-year essays was a strong viewpoint firmly expressed. Well, that seems to me to be the opposite of what historians ought to be doing. There's always a, a job to do to balance competing and conflicting evidence and to draw qualified conclusions from it as far as it's possible to do so. You might never be certain about one thing or another. The evidence might not permit it. Or you might be sure on the balance of probabilities. Or you might be a bit more sure than that. Everything depends on the evidence. It's not verdict first, evidence later. Doubt is always a good thing, and I'm all for historians who describe their reasoning. When Rubenhold uses it is possible, perhaps, and other similar phrases, phrasings, would have is another example, and one which does a lot of heavy lifting, from I'm certain she would have, to nobody knows whether she did or didn't, but I think she might have. She, when she uses these phrasings, she does so to express her own varying degrees of confidence in the conclusions she reaches. I'm okay with that. It just gets tricky, and if I'm honest, a little bit tiresome when one conditional follows another and another. Of course, one of the problems with Reuben Holt's book is that its underlying reasoning isn't always as clear as some rhetorologists would like it to be. Sometimes, as has been widely discussed, she appears to slip below the threshold of the historical method, and we don't know why. We do know that, as she says in her introdu introduction, she has reservations about newspaper reports because of the inaccuracies and misunderstandings which sometimes appeared in them, and she describes approaching them, quote, with care, and on the basis that, quote, nothing contained within them can be taken as gospel. That's fine, but you've got to pass everything through the same historical filter 
at the standard established by historians as they have developed their craft over thousands of years. There's nothing wrong with explaining why something isn't reliable, why something isn't trustworthy. I wish there was more of that. Just not enough to say Source X tells us this. If you don't tell us why Source Y, which contradicts it, isn't allowed to be part of the equation. In Rubenhold's case, the most egregious example of poor practice occurs in her handling of a report which was syndicated in the Times, the St James's Gazette, and elsewhere on the 1st of September 1888, and in other newspapers subsequently. The relevant passage reads, As the news of the murder spread, however, first one woman, then another, came forward to view the body. And at length it was found that a woman answering the description of the murdered woman had lodged in a common lodging house, 18 Thrill Street, Spitalfields. Women from that place were fetched and they identified the deceased as Polly, who had shared a room with three other women in the place on the usual terms of such houses, nightly payment of fourpence each, each woman having a separate bed. It was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate while lodging in the house, which was only for about three weeks past. Nothing more was known of her by them, but that when she presented herself for her lodging on Thursday night, she was turned away by the deputy because she had not the money. She was then the worse for drink, but not drunk, and turned away laughing, saying, I'll soon get my DOS money, see what a jolly bonnet I've got now. She was wearing a bonnet which she had not been seen with before, and left the lodging house door. Rubenhold's synopsis of this information leaves a lot to be desired. She says, when the story first broke, before anything substantial was known about Polly's life, almost every news, major newspaper in the country carried a piece stating, it was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate, in spite of also reporting that nothing, three suspension points, was known of her. So it wasn't that nothing was known of her. The women from Thrill Street knew various things about her, such as that she was called Polly, that she had shared a room at 18 Thrill Street with three other women at fourpence a night with separate beds for each of them, and that she'd been there about three weeks during which she had led the life of an unfortunate. They didn't know anything more except that on the last night of her life she had been ejected from the lodging house because she didn't have the money for her bed, that she was, at the time, nearly drunk, but nevertheless optimistic about finding the money for the bed before very long, and that her optimism was supposedly based in part on the jolliness of her bonnet. While Rubenhold blames the late Victorian police and the press for jumping to the conclusion that Marianne Nichols was a prostitute, quote, without so much as a single shred of evidence, end quote. But she never quite tells us why the information provided by the women of Thrall Street is to be discounted by the modern historian. And in fact, she embraces much of it. The identity of the lodging house, the sleeping arrangements, the duration of Nichols's stay at the lodging house, the fact that she was ejected by the deputy on the Thursday night, 
Nichols's inebriation at the time and her cheerful optimism about getting the money for the bed and the existence and presence of a bonnet are all accepted into Rubenhold's narrative. It is, of course, apparently true to say that as far as the sources permit us to know these things, Ellen Holland, Nichols's acquaintance, did not describe Marianne Nichols as a prostitute at the inquest. Although whether Rubenhold is right to say that she denied it, quote, adamantly, is uncertain. And even if she did deny it, it's not clear how Rubenhold knows whether she was telling the truth or not. It's also true to say that Marianne Nichols's father, when he spoke to the newspapers, denied that she was a prostitute. But one wonders whether a bereaved father, now responsible to some extent for his deceased daughter's public profile, would unhesitatingly answer in the affirmative to that sort of journalistic inquiry. Rubenhold is no doubt right to say that conclusions about the character of women in particular could be jumped to all too easily in the culture of the time. This may itself have been a reason for Edward Walker, Mary Ann Nichols's father, to be mindful of his words. Anyway, all of this is known and it would be good to know, in addition to all of that, on what methodological grounds Rubenhold omits to mention that the Thrill Street women reported that Marianne Nichols had been leading the life of an unfortunate. She could have done so and still have rejected that evidence if she had wanted. She could have explained why it was rejected, what it was about that morsel of information that didn't stand up to the historical test in the way that practically everything else said by the Thrill Street women did. But unfortunately, we don't see the carpentry here. We can't see the work that went into the decision. Speaking to The Guardian, Rubenhold said that, quote, the more I looked for evidence of sex work, the more I found that it just simply wasn't there. What I found instead was a lot of convoluted, confused definition of what prostitution was among the working classes and the poor, end quote. I'm not quite sure whether she means that the working classes and the poor of the 19th century were confused about what prostitution was, or whether she means that modern analysts are confused about what prostitution looked like among the working classes and the poor of the 19th century. However, if the Thrill Street women were confused about what prostitution was, or whether what Marianne Nichols was doing to sustain herself against the backdrop of poverty, inequality, disenfranchisement, addiction, isolation and social contempt was indeed compatible with the definition of the life of an unfortunate, then we as readers ought to know what their confusion was and how it can be identified now, especially since so many other aspects of their story were readily accepted. There are, of course, plenty of other complaints that one can make. Rubenhold identifies no evidence of any Chapman's survival by means of subsistence prostitution, but she doesn't tell us why Annie Chapman's children's pitiable fates conformed to Cassavitz's law, suggesting that she had contracted syphilis in the early to mid-1870s. Again, this evidence merely needs to be accounted for. Chapman could have caught syphilis in any number of ways, for example, by an extramarital affair, or by her husband's extramarital affair, supposing he had one. 
and not merely by engaging in prostitution. On Rubenhold's end, engaging with the evidence doesn't commit her to anything, doesn't bust her thesis, but its absence from the narrative is as spooky as the absence of the Thrall Street women's conclusion about Marianne Nichols's endeavours to survive. Similarly, Mrs Long's evidence is conspicuous by its absence. She saw Annie Chapman speaking to a male in the vicinity of 29 Handry Street, shortly before the discovery of her body in the backyard of the building. That doesn't mean that Annie Chapman was engaging in prostitution. But to omit to mention this important piece of evidence seems unreasonable. It's easy to find that the evidence of sex work, quote, simply wasn't there, if nothing can really be conceived of as evidence of sex work, and if all evidence is unreliable, unless you decide that it's not. So these are serious problems with Hallie Rubenhold's work, and unless we discover the reasoning behind some of her decisions about how she selects and manages her evidence, we are entitled to treat her work with care. But her anti-riferological stance, whether you think it was justified or not at the outset, isn't negated by the existence of a discipline which can resort to the use of casually derogatory language such as the comparison of the victims of the Whitechapel murders to animals. She might not be right for the right reasons, and she might not be wrong for the right reasons, but she might not be wrong for the wrong reasons, which means that she might be right for the wrong reasons. That's not necessarily a great place to be epistemologically, but it has a chance of sustaining itself in public because Riffreology's most unpleasant parts are often the bits that face the outside, when the Jack the Ripper Museum reduced one of the victims to a smear of blood on the ground at the feet of her murderer and then plastered the image onto drinking glasses and souvenir pencil erasers, people quite properly objected. That image is still available on merchandise purchased from the museum's gift shop. So is a tote bag with the words, there is nothing sexier than a male feminist printed on it, going into that gift shop is a very strange experience. Anyway, if that sort of representation of the victims in particular is allowed to be conflated in the popular imagination with riverology, then of course riverologists are going to be subjected to criticism. What I'm going to propose is that riverology is not the same thing as exploitation. From the outside looking in, a lot of exploitation might appear to be orthodox riffreology. From the inside, looking out, there are behaviours, forms of representation and ideologies that are characteristic of exploitation, which are flatly inconsistent not only with riffreology, but often with decent and humane values and the principles of historical methodology. To emphasise the positive work that goes on in riffreology year after year is going to require us to identify and expose the imposter behaviours with which serious and legitimate riffreology has nothing in common. We may not have time to look at all of the examples that I've identified on the model, 
which is on screen at the moment, but in brief, let me summarise my thoughts starting in the top left. I don't think that ripperiology is inherently or inescapably misogynistic. However, the use of, inverted commas, subtle or casual derogatory language, the overt sexualization of the victims, and a focus on the representations of violence and the body, are all exploitationist manoeuvres which can be identified and rejected by responsible ripperiologists. None of what ripperiology does, or seeks to do, is typified by the decision of Andrew Cook, for example, to splash the photograph of the remains of Mary Jane Kelly across the cover of his book, Jack the Ripper, which was published in 2009. I remember at the time that people were displeased about this decision and could not understand how it got through the brainstorming meeting at Cook's publishers. Cook himself was interviewed on Rippercast and firmly rejected any suggestion that the use of the provocative image had been animated by, quote, commercialism, describing himself as, quote, personally exceptionally offended, end quote, by the attempts of others to, quote, commercialise this very disturbing subject, end quote. He said that he was, quote, more offended, end quote, by a stereotyped hat and cloak and doctor's bag illustrations. His own cover art, he insisted, was, quote, a serious statement, end quote, and, quote, effectively about how the subject has been exploited, end quote. But anyone walking into their local bookshop might have been excused for finding it difficult to know that Cook's unadorned, uncontextualised and brutal cover image was, in fact, a critique of commercialisation. The text offered little further guidance. It doesn't discuss the representation of the victims in general, and it doesn't explain how exhibiting Kelly's mutilated body in this way serves to comment on, let alone rehabilitate her from, any representations of the past. On the back cover, a mocked-up billboard of the contemporary Star newspaper announced the existence of a, quote, cannibal ripper. On the podcast, Cook told his readers that the newspaper's advertising billboards had indeed said so, uh, perhaps on the 19th of October 1888, although it's not clear that any evidence exists to support this claim, and the idea may in fact have originated in the made-for-television drama first broadcast in 1988. None of that is helpful either in helping us to learn more about the manner in which the victims of the Whitechapel murders have been commercially exploited. Either way, this wasn't the last of the problems with Cook's book, but that will have to wait for another time. It would be interesting to know whether Cook or his publisher would make the same decision about the cover art again, or whether different forces would shape their thinking. But in the absence of any further context to support Cook's exegesis of the visual semiotics of his book's cover, it's difficult not to regard it as an example of the careless use of the imagery, imagery of violence in the literature of the Whitechapel murders. My point is that ripperiology can be done, has been done and will be done without recourse to violent imagery, at least on the front covers of books. Nothing is lost from ripperiology if the photograph of Mary Jane Kelly's body is not part of its marketing 
or its public facing imagery. Outsiders who might quite properly wince at the apparent lack of compassion and consideration involved in creating a cover image like Cook's need to know that decisions like that are not characteristic of ripperology as a whole, but rather of its parasitic jaxploitationist inversion. Moving to the bottom left, the commercial logo, I suppose, of ripperology as viewed from the outside is the hat, the bag, the cape, the fog and the knife. All the things to which Cook thought that the photograph of Kelly was a proper antidote. Well, heaven knows we're probably stuck with this sort of imagery now. The apparel of Jack the Ripper, his possessions and the weather conditions in which he supposedly operated are all part of a sort of visual metonymy by which he can be identified everywhere. But it seems to me that this image is better left to the Jack the Ripper Museum and other transparently commercial ventures, whose use of it apparently sits perfectly comfortably alongside their educational objectives. You have to wonder how. This is just another of the dizzying contrasts to which one is exposed in their gift shop. I've never gone any further into the building than that. What is it that riverologists do that demands, nay, depends upon the imagery of the cap and the hat and what, the, the, the hat and what have you? can be the subject of cultural criticism. Where did it come from? What does it mean? Why is it still here? But it communicates nothing about the core functions of ripperiology, and I think it belongs elsewhere. So here are two aspects of visual representation. On the one hand, that of the victims, and on the other hand, that of the popular figure of the murderer, which might interact in the central space of the jaxploitationist model. Think of it as a sort of Venn diagram in which every component has the potential to interact with and cross-fertilise every other component. I'm suggesting, again, that ripperiology can abandon the stereotypes, tactics and unpleasant values of jaxploitation and that it can do so firstly because they, know they play no part in its core functions and secondly because common decency ought to get us that far. I'm also suggesting that exploitation does not always confine itself to the exploitation of just one of the 12 components shown on the model, and that they may be comorbid or otherwise emerge in hybrid forms. I'm not completely convinced that the model is perfect. Ask me tomorrow and I might be put thinking to put this here and that there. And I haven't even mentioned the fabrication of evidence or plagiarism yet because, well, how long have we really got? What I am convinced of is that the best parts of ripperiology are often those which are least available for public inspection, and that the bits that the outsider usually sees are neither typical nor representative. Looking towards the bottom right, I want to think about over-identification with the victims or the suspects in the narrative of the Whitechapel murders. And perhaps this crosses over with the fetishization of the victims in the top right. Nobody operating in ripperiology ought to make the mistake of thinking that they know anything intrinsic about anybody who appears in the historical narrative. Personally acquired knowledge, the sort of emotional, instinctive, experiential knowledge that you might have of your family members, for example, is a different platform of understanding. All we have to direct our understanding of the victims of the Whitechapel murderers, murders 
a perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders and everybody else who has been personally inaccessible for dozens of years are chiefly written and occasionally visual sources. There is, of course, a balance here. The sources can tell us sometimes about aspects of character and personality that inform our perception of the person who prepared them or the person they describe. What the sources do not justify, however, are overwrought assessments of the character of individuals who remain known to us only in fragmentary and secondary fashion. Mary Jane Kelly, whose background remains more difficult to pin down than most of the other victims of the Whitechapel murders, has often been an involuntary screen upon which exploitationist fantasies have been readily projected. The price she pays for this is the arrival of excitable tourists to the site of her burial. Sometimes they come armed with alcoholic tributes, thereby celebrating the very vulnerabilities which contributed to her poverty and exploitation in life. In my view, performative gestures of this sort tell us more about the performer than the voiceless individual upon whose memory they are feasting. The absence of a comprehensively identifiable personal history has increased Kelly's utility for the emotionally over-involved, but there is apparently a tipping point here, and the so-called Pynchon Street victim, about whose background literally nothing is known, is never, as far as I can see, given the same treatment. With the Pynchon Street victim, there is just too little history to project one's fantasies onto. With Mary Jane Kelly, there's just enough, perhaps the optimum amount. The most dignified and dignifying manner in which to represent the victims of the Whitechapel murders is not to make them into icons of imposed characteristics, but to recognise the limits of our knowledge about them. Even here there's a danger, and this is where fetishisation comes in. In July 2016, with the narratives of the lives of the victims of the Whitechapel murders increasingly up for grabs after the rotten trick of the opening of the Jack the Ripper Museum, which you all remember was originally expected to be a museum of women's history, I attended a presentation about Catherine Eddowes entitled Unripped in the churchyard at St George in the East. Maybe presentation isn't the right word. I noticed that in my booking email to the individual who was giving the presentation, I apparently advisedly used the word performance. And the individual in question, according to their email signature, was practicing as a storyteller. I confess that I heard no klaxon at this stage. The storyteller told me that she had received thoughtful and generous help from a responsible ripperologist and acknowledged that the, quote, process of researching this story, end quote, had been, quote, a real journey for me. So, so far, so good. Eventually, when the churchyard assembly learned from the storyteller the truth of Catherine Eddowes' life, one particular anecdote stood out. I paraphrase, but... In essence, the story was this. During her time as a domestic servant to a well-to-do family in the West Midlands, Catherine Eddowes was tempted by the presence of a tasty-looking ham in the kitchen. She looked about. 
she was alone with the ham. Initially, she resolved to take only a slice, so little that nobody would notice. But the slice having lived up to the promise that her first glimpse of the ham had made, she gradually took more and more, until, at last, the ham was gone. Catherine had eaten the whole thing. Well, the problem with this is with the, as far as anyone knows, the story wasn't true. It has never appeared in the literature, not even in Harry Rubenhold's book, which, when it was published three years after the performance in the churchyard, set out to depict the life of Catherine Eddowes in greater detail than any preceding it. The storyteller, I presume, made it up and then presented it to their audience as if it were factual. July 2016 was a weird time. The, vex the Brexit vote had just happened and Trump was in the White House and the, the moderate right seemed to have given up on moderation as a bad plan, unlikely to win and secure power, and had instead begun to embrace the sorts of dog whistle tactics of the typical of those lying even further to the right. Uh, it became part of day-to-day -day political discourse for the right to exaggerate the threats posed to society by such phenomena as equality, human rights, transnational migration, and then to recommend illiberal policies to avert the impending catastrophe. The caravan of rapists and murderers that never arrived in the southernmost states of the US was just one example of these fantasies. But vote for vote, a lot of people found them persuasive and found that their belief in them could be absolute, irrespective of the truth of the matter, and that they were thereby relieved of the responsibility to, responsibility to think about these issues for themselves. The problem was that on the left, there was so little confidence in the ability of reason, patience and decency to orientate society in a fair and equitable direction that the temptation arose to fight fire with fire. It was no longer enough simply to expose the fabrications of the right and to appeal to popular common sense. And what was source for the goose eventually became source for the gander. The life of Catherine Eddowes is not without aspects of interest, but our knowledge of it is limited by the sources and, just like you and me, her achievements were not necessarily epochal. Much of her existence must have been quotidian and largely unremarkable and, just like you and me, the vast majority of the things she did, the thoughts she had and the emotions she felt are not engraved in the historical record. It was not responsible to insert fictions into these vacancies, irrespective of the political value which they appeared to carry. In what sense was the narrative of Catherine Eddowes's life restored or emphasised if any of its components were the products of the modern imagination? This was not the way to counter the propaganda of the right. Instead, this co-opted the manners of the right, piling misrepresentation upon misrepresentation. And from the perspective of the guidelines of historical methodology, it was invalid regardless of the intentions with which it was done. It's terribly frustrating to find the left doing the right's work for it. To fetishise the victims of the Whitechapel murders, to knowingly deviate from the historical record in order to increase their value as the tools of ideology, does justice to no one. Sensible riffologists can be truthful about Catherine Eddowes without being disrespectful or derogatory, and to be less than truthful is simply to diminish her identity further. 
The same historical standards can and should be applied to all the other victims of the Whitechapel murders. To reclaim them from misrepresentation, we must insist on their historicity and not on aspects of their character that we have for our own reasons projected upon them. We're approaching the end of this lecture now and I need to sum up. I think that there is something in Ripperology which is worth preserving. I think that, at its best, it's a lens through which we can see a microcosm of Victorian society and people who, frankly, without their connections to the murders, would have been forgotten altogether. I think that it diversifies into areas of genuine historical interest, even if you're doubtful about the suspectology aspect. The built environment, critical theory, policing, journalism, historiography and victim biography all legitimate areas of research and discovery into which, for several practitioners, Riverology has acted as a springboard and a catalyst. Unfortunately, this work is too often concealed by the more visible excrescences of exploitation, and by a sort of TARDIS effect, as a result of which outside observers tend to get the impression that everyone on the inside is homogeneous, conservative, thoughtless, and addicted to egg sandwiches. I think that our task is to ensure that the public perception of Riffreology begins to align more closely with the quality of the work being done. And we do that by continuing to insist on public standards of historical practice, ethics and decency. A Star Trek reference and a Doctor Who reference, that must be the end of this lecture. And it is.